I will be reading from Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of, law, of lawlessness. Good morning. Our sermon title this morning is The Saddest Scene Ever Seen. It's taken there from Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. The word sad is one of those words that really you don't need a definition. Everybody just knows what it means. And yet, I think it's necessary to remind you of just what this word means. It means showing or expressing a feeling of sorrow or unhappiness, causing sorrow or gloom, depressing, deplorable, inadequate, sorry. There has been and continues to be much sadness in the world. And so what then is the saddest scene among so much sadness, sorrow, and pain that has and does exist in the world? Maybe the first sin would be worthy of a consideration. Genesis chapter 3, the day sin and death entered into the world. Human life changed, and our existence has never been the same. Paul says sin and death came, Romans 5 and verse number 12. We moved from everything being very good to God asking, what have you done? In fact, the tears in Gethsemane are necessary because of the, the sin in Eden. Could be the flood. Uh, that would certainly be worthy of consideration. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 describes the state of man as every imagination of the thoughts of man's heart being only evil continually. Jesus said they were eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage, and they knew not until the flood came and took them all away. Genesis 6, verses 9 through 12, often not considered. Those verses actually say violence filled the earth at that time. What must it have been like for those outside of the ark the day the flood came? Sad indeed. More recent times, it could be the trail of tears marked the path of many displaced and dying. Slavery worthy of a consideration. A few years ago, I visited a slave museum in Memphis, Tennessee, saw the pictures, reminded of the history, men and women captured, put in the ships, stacked, packed, plantations, beatings, families torn apart, auction blocks. You could go on and on, but if you did, you'd have to talk about the Holocaust, families torn apart, death camps, gas chambers, firing squads, starvation, millions killed. Then you could argue war in general, battlefield, threat, loss of life, things that you see and hear in war changes people. Even those who survive are scarred and scared very often. There's genocides, Rwanda, and around the world, and not to mention all of the pain and the suffering and the sorrow, even in our more recent time over the past three or four years. Pain, suffering, sadness, it's a common experience of humanity almost since our beginning. Solomon's search in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 9, it is, or in that book rather, it is a wonderful search. He goes looking for meaning and fulfillment under the sun. 
And what he sees and finds is a variety of things, but one of the things he made note of is that he saw much pain, suffering, and sorrow. In fact, it made him so sad that through inspiration, he penned his feelings and his thoughts about that very matter. And it sounds like almost at the end of one of those days of searching, it almost sounds and reads as if he went home for the night contemplating what he had seen and what he had heard, and he penned these words. In chapter 4 and verse number 1 of his book, he says, So I returned and considered. What was it that he returned and considered? He said, I considered all the oppressions that I saw under the sun. And behold, the tears of such as were oppressed, and they had no comforter. And on the side of the oppressors, there was power, but they had no comforter. Wherefore, I praise the dead, which are already dead, more than the living, which are yet alive. Yet better is he than both they, which had not yet been born, who had not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. Twice in those few verses, Solomon said they had no comforter. Maybe he heard them crying for help, but he noted they had no comforter. Maybe they prayed and wailed about their circumstances, but he said they had no comforter. Maybe it was women and children that he saw oppressed, but they had no comforter. It's difficult to imagine, is it not, what Solomon must have saw? It'd be difficult to appreciate the oppression that moved Solomon to say, therefore, I praised the dead. And then to say, better than that, the individual who hasn't even been born, so he hasn't seen this oppression. As sad as those scenes are, and I would argue they're all sad, you could decide maybe which one you thought more sad. None of those is our topic this morning because none of them can actually compare to the scene that we will see. No, this scene is heartbreaking in every way, and it's arguably the saddest scene that will ever be seen. Sadder still is this fact, it might involve you or someone you love. Strangely enough, this scene begins with the greatest question ever asked. Acts chapter 16 and verse 31 records that question. A man falls down before another man, and he says, Sir, what must I do to be saved? That's the question that led us here. Let's set our scene. A religious man, a religious person is about to die. His name is Tommy. Everybody called him Tom. Tom, like many people, came up rough, but he reached the point in his life where he was finally ready to turn his life around, and he did. He was ready, as people generally say, to give his life to Jesus. And so he went to a preacher, and he asked him the very question, what do I need to do to be saved? And the preacher told him, Tommy, Tom, the first thing you need to know is you don't have to do anything. All you have to do is believe in Jesus. If you'll accept Christ into your heart, then you'll be saved. And Tom believed him. Tom believed him, accepted Jesus into his heart per the man's instruction. Tom then joined the church and lived out his belief. In fact, he lived it the rest of his life. Tom could only be described as a committed person, a family man. 
faithful husband, loving father, giving person, serving in the community. That's Tom. In fact, Tom lived in every way what would be considered a good life. Those who knew him saw the change, remembered his past, they admired Tom. And by the time we meet Tom, he's sick, and Tom is dying. Tom is in his bedroom, surrounded by his family, his wife, his children. They're all there. They're telling him how much they love him. They're recounting stories of his goodness and his change, and they're watching as his breathing grows more and more shallow. Until at about 10.30 p.m. on a Tuesday evening, Tom breathed his last and died. A few days later, Tom's funeral was held. And Tom's funeral was, was full. It was packed. Tons of people flooded into the auditorium. People from work, the church, community. So many people wanted to talk about Tom and what he had done and how he had affected them. They had to stop him. The singing was passionate. The eulogy was delivered by Tom's preacher, the one who told him, just believe. And as he was giving that eulogy, he told the audience what is often said about how long he had known Tom, how Tom had changed his former life, and how Tom came to find the Lord, and how he asked him what he needed to do, and he related to them all the things that he told Tom. Then he told the audience, don't cry for Tom. In fact, he said, Tom has gone to a better place. He's gone to be with Jesus. He assured the audience, Tom was hearing the words we all want to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. And Tom was now entering into the joy of his Lord. And for our purposes this morning, we have to leave the preacher still talking about Tom. Service is still going on, and he's assuring the people that Tom has, has gone home to be with God. We'll go back. But for just a moment, please consider this. What I've described will be the funeral of almost all religious people who profess belief in Jesus Christ. And up to this point, someone may be asking, where's the sadness? We'll come back to the funeral, but let me share with you a few thoughts about God. God is so good to us in so many ways, but one of those ways is his revelation. Because in his word, he gives us access, information, knowledge about things we wouldn't otherwise have. We simply would not know without God telling us. One of those things is what death is. James 2 and verse 26, the Bible tells us what death is. Death is the spirit departing the body. And so what we have left is a body. The spirit leaves, and that's death. The Bible tells us that. But the Bible doesn't stop there. It tells us this is death, and then it allows us to follow the Spirit. What happens after we die? Jesus tells us. It's recorded in Luke 16, 19 to 31. Two men in that account die. One goes to paradise and the other to torments. They enter a space called Hades. There's a gulf fixed between the two. You can't pass from one to the other. The rich man died and was buried, and in torments he lift up his eyes. The beggar also died, and he in paradise comforted in the Abraham, Abraham's bosom. That's what happens when we die. All spirits go to one of these two places. What happens at the judgment? The Bible tells us that too. Those who are in torments will be raised, 
and those in paradise will be raised. They'll be raised at the same time. There will be a separation. Jesus describes it as sheep and goats, Matthew 25, 31 to 46. Sheep on the right, goats on the left. One will go into eternal damnation, the other into heaven with God. Everyone attending Tom's funeral is comforted by the message that Tom has gone to paradise. Tom will go to heaven to be with the Lord. Question, what if they're wrong? When Tom died, days before his funeral, his soul departed his body and Tom entered eternity. What happened to Tom's soul? By the time the funeral is had, Tom and Jesus has already met, if you will. And so what actually happened? That's what's recorded in Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 21. In Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21, the first thing that Tom heard was an announcement. And the announcement sounds like this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Somebody has coined the phrase gate trouble. That's kind of the idea or the imagery here. It reads like someone in authority has stepped outside of the gate, if you will, where people are trying to gain access, and he's held them up with this announcement. Not everyone's going in. That's what the announcement is. In fact, the announcement is of such a nature that it would make those outside seeking interest to begin to check their credentials to see if they are able to get in. And so the announcement continued. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven, but the announcement says, he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Now imagine that Tom is there. And Tom is sure as he checked his credentials that that's exactly what he did. Tom would have remembered that his preacher told him when he asked, what do I need to do to be saved? His preacher told him, you didn't need to do anything. You just needed to believe. There Tom stands. Why is the scene so sad then? There's at least three things that stand out. Number one, it's the timing of the scene. When does this event occur? Jesus says, on that day. Now, all the scenes that we referenced earlier happened within this life under the sun. Solomon saw the oppression under the sun. They had no, they had no comforter. Death happens under the sun. In fact, we have seen it. Genesis chapter 4 begins it. On a mass scale or a small scale, it's always sad, but that's not this scene. No, this scene is taking place beyond the sun. This scene is taking place in eternity. And try to imagine a person who asks, what do I need to do to be saved? And they were told by someone who should have known or was supposed to know. They thought they knew, and they said, you don't have to do anything. And they did it. They believed. They lived faithfully. They served in the community. They attended the services. They helped people. Now they've, quote, reached the gate, if you will. And while the funeral is still in full swing, the preacher is now going to town, telling the people how good time has it. 
saying repeatedly he's gone to a better place. He's better off than we are. He's being welcomed by the Lord, assuring Tom's family he's gone home to be with Jesus, even going so far as it has become common to tell people, don't even cry for Tom. This, after all, is a home-going celebration. But if Tom died on Tuesday, the funeral's happening on Saturday. Tom met Jesus five days ago as we count time. They don't count time in eternity. What makes the scene so sad? Well, number one, it's the timing of this event. This will happen on that day. This will happen in eternity. But then secondly, the explanation and expectation make the scene sad, verse 22. Because when the Lord says not everyone's getting in, the people will respond. In fact, the verse says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in thy name and cast out demons in your name and do many wonderful or mighty works in your name? The sad scene is consistent with the separation of sheep and goat. It's not so much an individual scene, not one at a time per se. You'll notice that Jesus is addressing a crowd. He says within the crowd, not everyone. There are people in the crowd who will get access, but not everyone's going to. And then the crowd responds. In fact, the response of the crowd is expressly to the Lord's warning. Not everyone's coming in. Check your credentials. But only those who do the will of my Father. And then they say back to him, Lord, Lord, didn't we? The sadness comes from the crowd's acknowledgement and the checking of their credentials. You ever been in a situation, I've seen this in three different scenarios, maybe a school admission, or maybe a job shutdown, or maybe a contest where everyone who registered, they hear this, they show up, they're ready to get into the class, and then they're told, everyone who registered after this date, you cannot attend classes this semester. You check your registration and you realize suddenly, that's me. Or maybe they come to your department and say, everybody who works in this department, we're going to have to let you go. Or maybe it's a, a song contest where they put you in rooms and say, everybody in this room, you're going home. That's this. The sadness is in the fact that Tom checked his credentials. He believed he was going to gain acceptance and entrance. After all, he lived a good life. More than that, he was religious and devout. In fact, when they respond, they respond to the Lord, did not we do these good deeds in your name? Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not do these things and cast this in your name, Lord? We did it for you. What will make it so sad? The Lord's response to them, that's number three. You see, the Lord meets them outside of the gate, raises his hands, if you will, and says, not everyone's coming in. But only those who does the will of my Father, they check and they say, that's me. Lord, didn't we? But then the Lord responds. You see, that's the very next verse. Verse 23 opens with the words, and then, and then will I declare 
to them. That is after their explanation. Not everyone, but only those. Have not we? And then I will. These words that follow are authoritative. The judge with all authority is the one speaking. The Savior they were seeking to please is the one talking. The Redeemer who determines salvation and interest, that's the one saying the words. And what he says is, I will declare to them. Reminds me of different situations you may have been in in your life. You ever asked to speak to the manager because the service wasn't good, and the person said, I am the manager? <laughs> you ever said to somebody, let me talk to the boss, let me talk to the owner, and they say, I am the owner. Yeah, that's me. That's what's happening. They're talking to Jesus, and Jesus is talking to them. And what that means is there's no greater authority. There's no one to appeal to. If this one doesn't let you in, you're not getting in. And he just said, and then I will declare to them. There are three things our Lord says that make this arguably the saddest scene ever seen. The first thing he says it's recorded there in verse 23. The first thing is, I never knew you. This is the infinite God of heaven. Surely he cannot mean, I don't know who you are. He knows them. To an individual, he knows them. And so if he says, I never knew you, what does he mean? What he means is, I never approved of you. See, this is a group of individuals who followed the wrong information. They said, Lord, Lord, but they didn't do the will of my Father. Now, why didn't they do it? Because when they were asked, or when they asked the question, what do I need to do to be saved, they were told, you don't have to do anything. Now, imagine hearing for the first time, but in eternity, I never approved of you because you didn't do the will of my Father. They're hearing for the first time, there is actually something you needed to do. This is the danger of believing the wrong information about salvation. What must I do to be saved? Greatest question any person can ever ask, and you should ask it. But when you get the answer, you should exhaust everything you have to be sure you have the right answer according to the Scriptures. You just have to get this answer right. Tom didn't. And now Tom is being met by the Lord and being told, I never approved of you. The Lord had warned about this very dynamic. In fact, if you are open there in your Bible, look at the passages right above this one. Slide up to verse 15 and listen to what the Lord says. He said, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. Inwardly, they're ravening wolves. You'll know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from bushes and thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles. Every good tree, he says, bears good fruit. Every bad tree, bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce good fruit, and a bad tree cannot produce a bad fruit. Every good tree that does not bear fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. That's what leads into not everyone 
who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But listen, if you read that, go up just above that. Look at verse 13 and 14. These are the words of the Lord before we get there. There he said, enter ye in through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in there. You should understand that to be most people are going that way. In comparison, verse 14 says, the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few there be that find it. Comparatively speaking, few to the many are going to find it. There simply is nothing more important than getting the right answer to the question of salvation. Our Lord wasn't done talking. What's the second thing Tom would have heard First, Jesus said, I never knew you. What did he say next? He said, depart from me. Can you imagine a religious person hearing that in eternity? The heartbreak must be almost too—it's just too much to contemplate. What would you think if you heard the words, What's the feeling that you would have? Instead of going to heaven, that was your expectation. That was the anticipation. I did what the Lord said. In fact, I gave my life to Him, and now I'm ready to enter. And instead of ushering me in, He actually says, depart from me. The greater the anticipation and expectation, the greater the hurt and disappointment. That's true even in our temporal lives. But here people will go into eternity expecting to be escorted into heaven and then being told, I never knew you. It is almost difficult to contemplate God even saying the words, depart from me. It's something he actually never says. All God says to us is, draw near to me. All he ever says is, come to me, seek me, believe me, follow me, submit to me, obey me, commune with me, but not on this occasion. No, here he says, depart from me. How can you recover from this? How do you get out of eternally thinking about this? Instead of light, there'll be darkness. Instead of joy, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Instead of comfort, there'll be torment. Instead of relief, there'll be pain. And instead of hope, there'll be despair. Eternally, no joy, no love, no peace. Sadness and emptiness and pain will last forever. What must it have been like when you realized the flood started and you were on the outside of the ark? What must it have been like if you were part of Lot's family and had been given warning, and now the fire and brimstone has begun? What must it have been like? And what will it be like for Tom and others who expected heaven and are now being told, depart from me? The Bible describes it as unquenchable fire. I imagine I'm not the only one who tried to, tried to grasp it. Our finite minds being asked to understand and, and process eternal punishment. I thought about it maybe in the only way it can or get close to, and that is fire and a heat and a burning, maybe a steel factory with, with molten hot steel, liquid metal, 
Maybe a person working near it and around it and just being close enough to feel the heat needing special clothing and garments and having to be there only so long before it got too consuming. Maybe a person walking on some scaffolding and slipping. Maybe they fell from 100 feet and they began to see, as they were coming down, beginning to see the heat approach. Maybe the heat would catch them midair and maybe began to work on them and disintegrate. Maybe they would reach the bottom and splash around. I do know this. They would be destroyed at some point. The only thing left with such heat would eventually be the the consuming nature of what it would do to the flesh and to the hair and to the body. But not this. No, what we're asked to process is being able to feel that eternally. The worm doesn't die. For all that there is is a burning and pain and torment. And try as you might, because of the nature of our mind, give it a hundred years, but you just started. I'll give it a thousand years, but it won't end. Give it 10,000 years, and it will just last and last and last. And Tom and others will be told. Can you imagine the shock to Tom? But we did it in your name. We did it in your name. I never approved of you. Depart from me. Go back to the funeral. See, it's Saturday, and they're celebrating. And he's assuring them, no, 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 you're fine. Tom's fine. He's comforting the family. Tom is in a better place. In fact, he's getting near the end, and he says this. He says, the doors of the church are open. And if you're not right with God, you need to get right. How can you do it? All you have to do. Let me tell you what I told Tom. Just believe. You don't have to do anything else. Sit right where you are and accept Jesus as your Savior, and you'll be saved. One person after another did exactly what he said. Five days ago, as we count time, Tom heard, I never knew you. Depart from me. Jesus did say one more thing. He said, you workers of iniquity. This word iniquity means lawlessness. It's the condition that is without law. That is, what the Lord is saying to Tom and others is, number one, I never approved of what you did, but here's why. The reason I never approved is you were lawless in what you did. You were living outside of and without regard for my law. That's what he's saying. There are two ways that you can be lawless. There are two ways then you can work iniquity. One of those ways is you can do it ignorantly. The Bible enjoins upon us to study or to give diligence to show yourself approved unto God. A workman that needed not to be ashamed, handling or right or rightly dividing the word of truth. It's something that most religious people don't even know God enjoins. That it's not your job simply to read the Bible, 
but it's your job to reason correctly about the Bible. You're intended to open it up, see what it says, process the information, and draw the right conclusions, and then act accordingly. So many people don't do that. And yet the Bible warns us the way to cure ignorance is to give diligence to know. Time wasn't like the Bereans, though. No, the Bereans heard the Apostle Paul preach, and the Bible says they received his word with all readiness of mind, and they searched the Scriptures daily to see if what he said was so. Oh, if Tom had done that to his preacher! But he didn't. Tom didn't do that, and far too many people don't. There's a second way to be ignorant, to be lawless, and that is willfully. The Apostle Paul preached to some people. It's recorded in Acts chapter 13 and verse 46, where they were resisting his words. And Paul said this, Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But listen to it. Since you thrust it aside, since you set it from yourself and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, here are people who heard the truth. They understood it. They just rejected it. They said, no, I don't want it lawlessness. Either through ignorance or willfully, Tom had practiced lawlessness. Tom's preacher told him there was nothing he needed to do, and Tom believed him. What Jesus is telling them is you went beyond the Scriptures. You went beyond my Word. You added to it or you took away from it. Paul describes individuals like this in Romans chapter 10. He says of them, I bear them record. They have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. They are ignorant of God's righteousness, and therefore, he says, they've gone about to establish their own righteousness. As a result of that, he says, they've not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. Now, the problem with that is, it's God who's going to let you into heaven. And you haven't submitted to God's righteousness. You've gone about to establish your own. Here's a picture of lawlessness we could all understand. Given the amount of material on television these days about home improvement, seems like a fitting illustration. Can you imagine if you hired someone to renovate your kitchen? You sat with them, and they, you picked the colors, you picked the cabinets, and you picked the flooring and all the fixtures. You agreed on a price, and then you let them go to work. In fact, you told them, when I come back, it'll all be done. I'm going away, and when I get back, we'll do the reveal. And they say, great. And there you are, ready for the reveal, and you come home. Step into your kitchen, and what you see is the contractor has used different colors. He's picked different cabinets. He picked a different Floyd. It's similar, but it's not the one you chose. And in addition to that, he's renovated your bathroom. Wasn't even on the list. <laughs> and then, to your amazement after all of that, he hands you a bill. What do you say to the contractor? I mean, if you could say it out loud. What would you say? I know you, being the nice person you are, you probably just grab your checkbook and say, here you go, and then I'm going to add $500 because you were so nice. No. Did you know that God sent Jesus to renovate our lives and to redeem our souls? Jesus came to do the will of the Father. He died for our sins, not his own. 
And in his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus said, God has placed salvation in the gospel. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. What is God, Paul? The gospel. To whom? To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein, in the gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Here's the sad part. You refuse to obey the gospel. And in fact, instead of submitting to the gospel, you went about like the, like the contractor and you made your own salvation. Despite the fact that God went out of his way to tell you and I exactly what he means by faith. That faith ultimately is trusting him and doing what he says. That's faith. He gave examples of how grace and faith work together and how ultimately they result in our salvation. He gave us Noah, Genesis 6, 13 to 17, build an ark. And when you build the ark, I'll save you, Noah. Do something. He told us in Exodus 12, 1 to 13, Israel, put the blood out. And when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. Put the blood out. Do something. He told us in 2 Kings 5, Naaman, you have leprosy, you want it cleansed? Go to the Jordan, dip seven times, and I will cleanse you. Do something. He did. Acts chapter 2, the apostles preached the gospel. Men and brethren, what shall we do? They did not say nothing. In fact, they said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins. You shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, the promises unto you, to your children, to all those that are far off. And with many other words did they testify and exhort them, saying, save yourselves. How? By repenting and being baptized. But you know what? You didn't do that. Mm-mm. Because you went and asked your preacher. You know what your preacher said? You don't have to do anything, Tom. First thing you need to know is, you don't have to do anything. Then your preacher told you, all you have to do, that alone should have sent an alarm off in your mind. The first sentence was, you don't have to do anything, followed by, all you have to do is believe. But so that you weren't confused, God again stepped in. He wrote the book of James. Chapter 2, verse 14, to the end of the chapter, and he talked at length about faith and what belief really means. And he told us, it's doing something. Brothers, sisters, naked and destitute of food, and one of you say unto them, be warmed and filled. Yet you give them not the things which are needful to the body. What good is that? He says, without that work, it's useless. He says in chapter 4, chapter 2, 14, 67, he says all the way to the end of the chapter, if you have faith without works, it's dead being alone. If you have faith without works, it cannot be shown. If you have faith without works, it's demonic. In fact, it's less than the demons do. It can't justify. It's the opposite of Abraham. Abraham was justified by works. He says, in fact, by works, Abraham's faith was perfected. He says that. He says, don't you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith only? The words faith only are in the Bible, but right before they appear, the word not is also in the same verse. Not by faith only. It's as if God wants us to know so that we don't end up in Tom's position. But Tom was told, you don't have to do anything. Just believe. It's as if Tom was told, go read about Noah. All he did was believe. No, he built the ark. 
It's as if Tom was told, just, just believe, but don't put out any blood like the Israelites. Just believe, but don't dare dip in the, in the, in the Jordan like Naaman. No, don't do that. Just believe, but don't be baptized. Because that, Tom, has nothing to do with your salvation. Now, if you've done this, you're a lot like that contractor. You see, you've practiced lawlessness. But then you've shown up to heaven and asked the Lord to pay you with heaven. And your refusal to trust and obey, you, you've done that. And now in eternity, you're telling God, I'm ready to get paid. His reaction will probably be the same as yours. Christ said, I didn't approve of your work because it was iniquity. And friends, the truth is, if you don't submit and obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, Tom's story will be your story. I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. Tom thought he did, and many people do. He lived it, believed it, practiced it as best as he could. But his preacher won't be there in eternity. Jesus will. I've entitled this sermon, The Saddest Scene Ever Seen, and I thought it was. In fact, as I wrote the sermon, I was almost certain that I could not think of anything worse than an individual who believed himself to be right with God, showing up in eternity, having committed his life to the same, and to hear God say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I didn't think there was anything possibly to be worse than that, but there is. The Scripture records it in 2 Peter 2, beginning in verse number 20. Peter says, For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. What could possibly be worse than never knowing the truth? Knowing the truth, being saved, and then going back to the world. That's worse. In fact, we have a name for it. We call them lost sheep. But we say it and then just kind of go home as if it's okay. The reality is often they just stay lost. And if they stay lost and they die, well, they'll be lost eternally. That's worse. There are parents right now struggling with that very reality. They, they taught their children. They brought them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, but then the children got older. The children became teens and went off to college and became young adults. And the teens and the children were done with all that church stuff, and so they went into the world. But unlike the young man in Luke 15, they didn't come back. In fact, they grew further and further from the Lord. Their heart grew harder and harder, and eventually they didn't want anything to do with God or the church or, or Scripture, and they died. And they'll go to hell. Oh, that'll be more sad. Uh, Young people, you need to know how much your faith is in your hands. And if you've turned away from the Lord and turned away from his church and his cause, and if you've been hurt and bruised and scraped and scarred, and if there's cause in your heart to have blame about somebody else and what they did or did not do, all of that notwithstanding, don't give up Jesus. In fact, Jesus is the solution to your pain, and you need to come home to him. The only thing worse than not knowing like Tom is knowing and walking away. And so God has given us passage after passage after passage about his children coming home. 
We pray that you will. Sometimes it's not children, though. Sometimes it's marriages. A couple is married. Both of them are Christians. In fact, that's why they got married. They went out looking for a Christian to marry, and they found one. Somebody pulling the same way, going the same way, thinking the same way, doing the same things, and they got married, except one of them was pulled back to the world. They stopped attending. They started making excuses. They're too tired. It's work. It's this. It's that. Over time, they drift away from the Lord, and they'll die, and they'll go to hell. Oh, that's more sad. Then there's some Christians who continue to attend church service but have no interest in the Lord. There is a difference. They come, but they don't get involved. They should be teachers, but they still need to be taught. They never grow. They never add to their faith. They become barren and unfruitful is how Scripture describes it. They don't help the work. In fact, they don't get involved at all. They're never available, can't stay, do extra, sacrifice, serve. No, never them. They're near, but they're not in. They're around, but they're not apart. They sing, they love Jesus, but in works they deny him. They still count themselves faithful. They don't understand. God doesn't. They've fallen away inside of the building. They die, and they too will hear, depart from me. I never knew you. It's more sad when members drift away from the Lord, become unfruitful, and go to hell than if someone never knew God in the first place. There were some individuals who were once on fire for the Lord, but their flame and their fire have gone out. They used to be energetic, enthusiastic evangelizers, but now they are bitter, murmurer, complainers. They don't help the local work. They now hinder the work, harm the work, hamper the work, do all that they can to play like their father, the devil. They just constantly advocate for him. They'll die. They'll go to hell. That'll be more sad. I've imagined three people in hell talking. The first one says, I'm here because I never heard the gospel. The second one says, I'm here because I heard it, but I was told I didn't have to do anything, so I didn't. The third one says, I'm here because I heard it. I obeyed it. And then I went back to the world and turned away from it. Which would be worse? There's three people in heaven talking. The first one says, I'm here because I obeyed the gospel young and lived faithfully my whole life. The second one says, I'm here because a friend invited me to a meeting. I learned and I had not obeyed the gospel. I thought I was saved, but I learned that I wasn't. And when I heard the truth, I obeyed it and lived faithfully ever after. And then the third one says, I'm here because I obeyed the gospel, but I, I turned away. I went back to the world, but some faithful brothers and sisters reached out to me, and I repented and came back home and lived faithfully, and that's how I made it. When you die and meet Jesus, what scene will be yours? Will you hear, well done, good and faithful servant? Or will you hear, depart from me, I never knew you, you worker of iniquity. It's the saddest scene that can never be seen. Which one will be yours? If you haven't obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, we try to say it in every way imaginable. 
hoping that one way will soften and unlock your heart. It's not ours. It's not Church of Christ doctrine. It's not our church to join. You have the same 66 books. You can read the same information. Either Noah has to build the ark to be saved or he doesn't. Either Israel has to put out the blood and the words of God in verse 13 is, when I see it, I'll pass over. That's true or it's not. Either Naaman has to dip in the Jordan seven times to be cleansed of his leprosy or he does not. Neither you need to be repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins, or you don't. It's very clear which one of these you will read in your Bible. And Tom was told, you don't have to do anything. Then Tom was told, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. It is our plea this morning that you will not allow yourself to live this life, leave this life, believing that. If you are his child and you have wandered away, please come home. One of the things that people struggle with in this life is their memories. They've lived in such a way, and they've done things early in their life, and then even when they change, their memories beat them up in this life. And God is asking you to let that go if you've been forgiven. But can you imagine remembering eternally that you were once saved? Abraham told the rich man, son, remember. Why is it worse if for no other reason it will be because you knew you didn't have to be there? If you've wandered away from the Lord, come home. We beg you this morning as we stand and as we sing.